All right, we are in Genesis chapter 32. We're back to the story with Jacob, and this is actually my favorite chapter, and it's the one I've written the least on. And uh, so that, just a danger, that usually means it could be a long sermon, but I, it won't be as long as what two weeks ago was. You're like, please, not that long. That was an hour. That was crazy. Um, it won't be that long. Or it could be a really short one if I just stick to the outline. You're like, outline looks good, Pastor. Outline looks good. I know what you're thinking. Don't think I don't. So I want to praise uh, God this morning for this story because if it's stories like this that help us to understand um, the God relationship and the human relationship when it comes to reconciliation. And reconciliation is a huge part when it comes to uh, forgiveness, when it comes to broken relationships and mending. This is a process, and I, I stole some of the process from uh, the Catholic Church because it goes right alongside what they do, um, but I changed it a little bit because they like to reconcile through someone, and we only reconcile through Jesus Christ. It's how, um, that's the biggest change in there. There's other things, but they're, they're, their four-step process is good, um, just as long as it points at Jesus. So, like I said earlier, God is revealing himself to Jacob in mighty ways. He is starting to call him back to his homeland. He is starting to bring the separation between his father-in-law and he. And as they come alongside one another, he is starting to place this hedge of protection around Jacob as Jacob is turning back to the Lord in a more earnest way. And soon, Jacob's heart will be dependent on the Lord and the Lord alone. And that's, this is kind of that story that, where this happens, okay? It's where Jacob, he has this relationship with God as kind of fire insurance, okay? Like, what do I mean by fire insurance? It means that I'm not going to go to hell. So God and I are good, and when I die, I'm going to go and be in heaven with him. But now he is, God is asking Jacob for total surrender. And he says, okay, God, I'm going to follow you with everything. I'm going to give you everything. And when he does that, Jacob's name is turned Israel in this chapter. And uh, God does some pretty amazing things there. Uh, we'll get to see some more of that story next week with his brother and things. But there's a distinction we'll see between Esau and Jacob as well, that really points to Esau being part of the world and, and Jacob being uh, part of God's plan. And that helps us decipher some of the things that we see earlier on in Jacob's life, I think, as well. So God has shown up to fight for Jacob and be this hedge of protection, and he's going to be the glory in his heart. So when God is working in our lives, we are not only content, we are not only content to stay the same, we are just not. Uh, the Lord calls us to reconcile our sins with him and with our fellow man as we surrender to his will. Let's get into the story of Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 through 12. As Jacob started on his way again, angels of God came to meet with him. And when Jacob saw them, he exclaimed, this is God's camp. And so he named the place Mayanam. Okay, so God shows up again. And Jacob is excited. He's not necessarily as fearful maybe as last time. He's excited to see God. 
So then Jacob sends messengers ahead to his brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir, the land of Edom, which is not where he should have been if he was the firstborn, by the way. And he told them, give this message to my master Esau, humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now, I have been living with my uncle Laban, and with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle and donkeys and flocks of sheep and goats and many servants, both men and women. I have sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming and hoping that you'll be friendly to me. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, We met your brother Esau, and he is already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. Jacob was terrified at the news. He divided his household along with the flocks and herds and camels into two groups. He thought, if Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. And then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac, O God, you told me, return to your land and to your relatives, and you promised me I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and the faithfulness you have shown me, your servant. When I have left home and crossed the Jordan River, I own nothing except for a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. O oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me, along with my wives and my children. But you promised me. I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore, too many to count. That's the word of the Lord. Jacob is afraid. What were the parting words that he had with his brother Esau? Bye, wish you well. No, is as soon as father dies... I'm going to kill you, right? Father's dead. And what does he hear of this report? He has an army of 400 men coming this way after you. Now, it makes me wonder if those servants went all the way and talked to Esau, or if they just saw Esau in the distance, and they're like, oh my, um, let's turn around and go back and report what we saw, right? Because we find that Esau's attitude is not near as bad what it is, but this puts Jacob's faith to the test because all he knows is the past and he is looking at the situation with the past through the lens of the past. But he does something amazing here. He talks to the Lord and he prays to him and he recalls the Lord's promises to him, right? Now, that's like praying God's word back to him. It's one of the most effective prayers I think you can do in your lifetime is to pray God's word back to him. Remember, you said this. Remember, you did this. Remember your words to us. You are not a God that is false. You said that you're going to do this. I'm going to trust you. Now, Jacob has done a very good job at this point to allow God to bless his household. He's allowed God to bless his crops and his animals and his flocks and things. But when it comes to the point where everything's going to be taken away from him, Jacob is terrified. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't know 
how he is going to reconcile with his brother. Is he going to even have a chance? Is he going to have a chance to defend himself or even fall on his sword? He doesn't know that. So he cries out to God, and this is a big change in Jacob's relationship. In the past, we see that God, he may consult with the Lord, but here we have a written prayer. It was a turning point in Jacob's life that he turned to God to be his defender, to be his hedge of protection, to be the glory that dwells in his heart, and this is the beginning of change. So God is coming to the camp at the very beginning of this chapter. We see that, and he meets with Jacob or something. He says this is two camps, and he means that by two camps, that this is the camp that is a physical camp, and there's a camp that this is where God dwells as well, okay? And so Jacob recognizes this, and he gives praise to the Lord, and now it's time to get right with his brother Esau. Now he's kind of right with God. He's going to be right with Esau, and he sets sends out a delegation to his brother, and he finds out that his brother is already on his way with 400 men. And it makes me wonder if Jacob knows his brother Laban or his mother warned him that Jacob's going to need help on the return. And Laban's not just going to let him go. I know my, my brother. I know that's not how he works. I don't know. Um, so... One way or the other, we see that Esau is coming to escort him. I feel Esau's got a little bit more character than Laban does. And so I take him at his word. Um, excuse me. Jacob immediately starts to divide his camp into two groups, which to me shows a little bit of a lack of faith. He just met with God, he's, but he divides them in two groups and then he stops and he prays. And I think that was a wise move on his part. He takes time to pray. Anytime we get into a place where we need to reconcile, we need to take time to pray. I'm not going in this with my own authority, but I'm going into this with the authority of the Lord, God Almighty. So he takes time to pray, and that pops him out of survival mode, the feeling that his brother's going to kill him, and, it, and he then takes time to to say, wait a minute, God, you are the one that's in charge here. Remember that you said this was going to happen. Remember that it was going to go kind with me. Remember your words and your promises. So it takes time in this high-pressure situation to pause and ask God for help. How many times does it do you feel like you're too busy to pray? You know, I just, I'm going, I got this to do, I got this to do, I have this, next, 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 next. But when we stop and we pray, God allows that plan of the day, plan of the week to just kind of fall into place. And it's going to fall where it's going to, anyway, right? So we can learn from our mistakes and how we planned out our week, that we maybe need to do a little less or may need to reorganize how we did our week, or maybe we get to see how God works and walks and knocks those dominoes down right in front of us. But taking time to pray will always, always help calm the mind, calm the spirit, and allow the, the week to go much better. We always commented, um, Brian and I, when he was working for my dad, and said every time they start the day with scripture, 
and prayer, he says that day would go well. And when we forget, that day didn't go as well. So that's always a good way to start your day, uh, re- listening to God's promises so you can meditate on them throughout the day. And so then you are ready to face your day with God's promises when you're praying them back to him. So this brings about this process then of reconciliation. He knows he needs to get right with his brother and he's trying to figure out how he's going to do it. So we're going to look at reconciliation in four steps today. And the first three steps will be with this passage of scripture and the fourth step will be with uh, the next chunk of scripture. It's just how the scripture laid out for me this morning and so I, I broke it up and that way I don't have a really really long sermon. You're like, praise God for breaking up sermons like that. Uh, but what does look reconciliation, what does it look like? Step one, contrition. What is contrition? Well, contrition is sorrow of the soul and the detestation for the sin committed together with a resolution not to sin again. What in the world did you say there, Pastor? It says you have this, you develop this hate of the sin. You're in the midst of the sin. You're right before you're sinning. You feel the temptation coming on. You feel after the sin. You have a detesting of that sin as you walk through that sin. That is contrition. That is one way you can battle the pleasure of sin. It's to walk through it as a broken person instead of walking through it as a lustful thought or an envious thing or an attitude of hate or loathing or I don't care. All those attitudes are bad and very destructive. So if we walk through with contrition, it looks a lot like David's heart in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, this is where David breaks down to the Lord. He breaks down during the time right after he gets caught, in a sense, with the sin of killing Uriah the Hittite and taking his wife Bathsheba as his own. You're like, what? The champion of the Bible did that? Yes, he did. And he pronounces his own verdict of death. That man deserves to die. And Nathan the prophet says, you are that man. And he asks right away for forgiveness. And, it, and I studied that David hadn't written a psalm, that least that we have recorded, in those two-year period of when Uriah was killed to when he had to confess that sin. Um, and so he writes Psalm 51 from his heart, from the depth, from the heartache. And verse 16 and 17, it says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Okay, so Jacob and in this case, David, they get the relationship here correct so that they can work the relationship this way, right? 
You work the relationship between you and God so you can work your relationship with you and your brother or you and your fellow man, right? And so uh, David says, you do not desire a sacrifice because that's what their whole system is built on, right? Their whole system is built on if I burn the sacrifice at the altar, then I will be uh, right before the Lord, well, that is an act, a symbolism of the broken heart that needs to go along with it. And that's what David is saying, and that is true today. When we sacrifice ourselves with our brokenness in our hearts, then God can work alongside us, and he can make all things new with a repentant heart. Right? Isn't that kind of cool? Why, why is that? Why does God want to do that? Because it's not, if we were to work sacrifices, if we would bring, if we, you know, if you put $100 in the plate every week, we, your sins are forgiven, you get to go to heaven. That's workspace, right? That's not what we require. That's not what God requires. Well, if you just do acts of service out in your community, then you get to go to heaven. No, that's not how it works either. That's giving to get. God doesn't work that way. God says, I already gave. And for you to say anything else needs to be required, that takes the death of my son and minimizes it to trash. Why would my son even need to die if you could get to heaven like that? No, he had to die for you. So the only way for you to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ, and you need to have a broken spirit and submit to his authority in your life because it'll go well with you because that's what we're designed to do, folks. We have a brokenness in our heart, and when it is not broken for the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to have contrition and get back right with him, okay? Um, as more and more I grow in my faith, the more and more I have an addiction, and it's addiction to Jesus Christ, right? And when I can um, strive for his word and strive for that longing, um, I am satisfied. I have a peace that passes understanding. Step number two is confession. As David did in Psalm 51, he confesses sins to the Lord. Um, it's confession or disclosure of sins. This is also good to do with your fellow brother sometimes. Uh, we had a really good uh, coming to Jesus moment last night with the men's group. We just came along and said, this is what we're struggling with. This is what we need to. How can we work through some of these things? And we were able to come alongside. Here's some things that you can put into place to uh, stop that from happening. How are you going to um, fight against... Well, I shared one of my defense mechanisms, fighting against lust. Okay, I have in my wallet a three by five card that I carry with me. I have one on my phone too. And it has everything that I would lose if I, um, my one on my phone is longer than this because it's when I was young. But uh, if I were to submit to lust, if I were to cheat on my wife or something like that, um, these are the things that I would lose. And if that starts to well up in me, then I look at that list and it brings me back into reality. 
And it allows me to confess my sins. It allows me to put Christ first. It allows me to walk in contrition with him to him. Because we know in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Or it says unrighteousness and other ones too, right? And I'm good at wickedness, unfortunately. That's my sin nature. That's my human nature waging war at me. Like it says in Romans chapter 7, I do what I don't want to do, but what I don't want to do is making me do it. So I shouldn't be able to do it now that I have Christ. No, no, no. It's waging war. It's going to be right there with me. What a wretched man I am. How am I going to get out of this? And it says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's condemnation? It means that you are wrong. You are going to hell. When I have Christ Jesus in me, he says, no. The blood of Jesus is written on his sins, and you get to go to heaven. Praise God. So that brings us to step number three, clean slate. Christ draws us to him. He separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Let's look at Psalms chapter 103, verses 8 through 13, where we'll find that scripture. It says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. How did David know that his, he's slow to get angry? He says it like it's fact. Because he learns about it from Moses, who heard it from God, who said, I am slow to get angry. Blessing for a thousand generations, only cursing to one or two, right before he gave the Ten Commandments. So he's quoting scripture again. Huh. Interesting, huh? So he will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deny or doesn't deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward us, toward those who fear him, is as great as the heights of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Praise God. Praise God. It is God's desire to draw his children back to him. He has made the payment for our sin with the atoning sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Now, we may boldly approach the throne of grace because of what he has done for us and not what we do for him. Okay, so why, why do we serve the community? Why do we go out? Why do we want to proclaim the message it's because the abundance of grace that has been poured out into our heart wells up within us the holy spirit and out of the overflow of our cups a blessing we can't help but proclaim the power of jesus christ to our neighborhood we can't help but want to go out and serve our communities we can't help but go out and say, as Christ has set the example for me, so I want to set the example for you so you can see Christ Jesus. Right? That's how it goes. 
It's give to give so they might see what the Lord has done. Through this act of love, God shows us what it means to demonstrate sacrificial action. When God is working in our lives, we are not content to stay the same. No, the Lord calls us to reconcile our sins with him and with our fellow man as we surrender to his will. Let's continue on in the story. We see some of this reconciliation happen right in our story. It says, Jacob stayed where he was for the night. Then he selected these gifts from his possessions to, to present to his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 Jews, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He divided these animals into herds and assigned each to different servants, and they told his servants, go ahead of me with the animals, but keep some distance between the herds. He gave these instructions to the men to lead, leading the first group. When my brother Esau meets you, he will ask, whose servants are you? Where are you going? Who owns these animals? You must reply, they belong to your servant Jacob, but you are a gift for his, for his master Esau. Look, he is coming right behind us. Jacob gave the instructions to the second and third herdsmen and to all who followed behind the herds. You must say the same thing to Esau when you meet him and be sure to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. Jacob thought, I will try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of me. When I see him in person, perhaps he will be friendly to me. So the gifts were sent on ahead while Jacob himself spent that night in the camp. What better way to reduce the numbers of soldiers by giving them a whole bunch of herds to take care of? <laughs> right? Uh, that's, that's one motive. Two is... Um, he's trying to butter up his brother, right? Uh, get, it's better, this is the honey vinegar passage right here, right? It's better sweeten with honey than to uh, work it with vinegar, right? Step number four is correcting the wrong. And we know that Jacob had some things to make right with his brother, right? I wouldn't say that he was I would say he semi-deceived Esau to giving him his, the blessing. I would say um, he has worked his family to his advantage. And since then, God is working on his life to make it right. But notice how he sends everybody in front of himself. And we'll see that especially in the next passage we read. So correcting the wrong is not only asking for forgiveness and seeking forgiveness from your, your Lord, but from your fellow man. And when we seek forgiveness on a human level, a lot of times there's restitution that needs to be paid. And the question needs to be asked, what can I do to make it right? I'm sorry I lost my cool. What can I do to make it right? Well, you can share with me what's on your heart so I can understand the stress that you're in so I know that you're not yelling at me. You might be yelling about the stress. I, maybe that's not acceptable. Maybe it's 
Um, I wish you would blow up outside and then we could talk about this rationally. Just walk away. If you need to walk away, I give you permission to walk away. Take a couple of deep breaths. Come back in and we can go from there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, which has been a go-to verse lately for my applications, um, goes like this. It, it means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak Christ when we plead, come back to God. Right? If Christ is in the process of reconciliation then we should have a desire in our heart to be reconciled with the person that we've done wrong. Okay, think about that. If Christ is really working in us, the evidence that he is in our heart is that remorse that we feel that, oh man, I just screwed up. And if I screwed up, I need to ask the question, what can I do to make it right? Can I make them change their mind? No, I can't. I can only change myself. And I have a responsibility as a Christ follower to reflect Christ in my life and ask the question that's really hard to ask. What can I do to make this right? <laughs> I don't want to say that. Yeah, Batman, right? Why don't we want to say that? aren't we giving them the authority in that relationship at that time? That is really hard. Men, men, that's really hard for us to do, isn't it? We're supposed to lead. We're supposed to be the strong one. But guess what? The first one to come in the reconciliation process and ask for forgiveness, I would say 100% of the time is the stronger one. It is so hard to defeat your own stinking pride and set it aside and say, I messed up, I've sinned, what can I do to make it right? That is hard. That is, I heard that, I can't remember who told me that, but I remember that, and I still remember it today, and I'm like, huh, I'm sure Brandy's stronger than I am. She'll come first, right? Well, Anytime the Lord's saying that to your heart, that means you should be going first because you probably screwed up. <laughs> Sorry. So Christ has brought us back. So since Christ has brought us back to God, we get to spread the word of his grace to others so they can be drawn to him as well. And if Christ is really in the business of reconciliation, then we will be reconcilers. We go as ambassadors to make our appeal for this repentance. And if we can't do that with our husband or our wife, then how can we even be an ambassador to our neighborhood? Ouch. You didn't step on your toe. Ah, steps on my toe, right? If 
can't do this with your kid, how can you do this in this relationship? If you can't do this with blank, how can you, right? With your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your coworker, whoever it may be, the snot-nosed kid next to you in class that keeps picking on you. But as God draws you to himself, he will also use that relationship to draw others to him as well. Because when God is working in our lives, we cannot be content to stay work, just to stay the same. We can't do it. The Lord is calling us to reconcile our sins to him and with our fellow man as we surrender to his will. Let's finish this up, 22 through 32. During the night, Jacob got up. He took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. Okay? So he puts them on Esau's side of the river. Okay? Then taking them to the other side, he sent all his possessions and put them on the other side of the river. This time, Jacob, all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of his socket. And then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name is no longer to be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with the God and with men and you have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob's named the place Peniel because that means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, the, the people of Israel do not eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what the hip what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. You ever have sciatic pain? That's the nerve. God touched a nerve. He, you're touching a nerve, God. Well, he touched that's the nerve that uh, uh, he touched on Jacob, right? So he's bent over. Oh man, that hurts so bad. It, it's hurting. Right? He is out of whack and he is for the rest of his life. But he learns total surrender. Jacob moves from justification to walking and searching for holiness. How do I do it? How do I get there? I cling to God. I don't have a choice. I am not strong enough. I can't do it myself. You look at Jacob. You look at the self-confidence that he shows throughout his life. And you see a man that thinks he can do it all by myself all the time. And he's clever and he's smart and he works the crops, he works the flocks, he works the people, and he puts it to his advantage. And sometimes he uses God in that. From this point on time, he consults God and then he works his crops, then he works his flocks, and then he works with people because God's going to get the glory and not Jacob. That is what it means to walk in sanctification. That means what it means 
to walk in holiness is you put God first and foremost, and then you do life as worship. I do my schoolwork for the Lord and no longer for myself. I garden for the Lord and no longer for myself. I work on my car, my house, my things, my family for the Lord and not for myself. Because whatever you do, work at it, not for yourself, but as unto the Lord. Where I always had the hardest time doing that is cleaning out rotten corn and rotten soybeans. You ever smelled rotten corn before? Some, you know that, that scent that you get um, when ADM's running the, the, the scent? You multiply that about by 10 because that is rotten corn. That's what that smell is, right? It's kind of got that, that loaf of bread smell that comes over the river. They're supposed to only run at night and it always works itself into the day. Well, that's that smell, right? Well, you, then you put a rotten tinge to it. And then soybeans. So corn's got this like dull scent, right? Soybeans got the sharp scent to it, and they both stink. And you mix those two together, there's not much that is more pleasant than those two scents. And if you clean out boxes, so grain legs, you see those grain bigs out in the country and then they got the big chute that goes up the center and then the chutes that go off the side. When they get really tall, they got to put a, um, a slow down box basically in there because that grain will come down through there and it'll put a hole right through the bin floor if they don't have that there. So they slow it down, it spins it in there and it slows it down, it slows it down to the spreader and then it allows it to go, okay? So as this is happening, somebody's got to go out there and clean out those those, those slowdown boxes, or those drop boxes, what they're called. And we had to clean out something. I wouldn't go out there. We had a couple of crazy guys on a crew. They would go out there, and they'd shimmy around out there with their harness on. They'd slide down there, clean the box out, and it was all good. And I was like, nope, you can crane that thing down here. <laughs> so that's how I did it. We would have the crane there. So when the crane was there, we'd unattach them, clean out the boxes, put them back up. But that stench is the worst stench in the world. And I'm allergic to soybeans, and rotten soybeans apparently really get me bad because um, they just stink. So how do you do a job like that? I don't want to do this. I am not motivated for this farmer. I'm sorry, but uh, if you want these clean, you're going to do this. But I am motivated for the Lord. And whatever I do is not for my glory, it is not for the farmer's glory, it's for God's glory. And I'm going to work at it, not for myself, but as unto the Lord. And I'm going to clean that drop box out to the best of my ability because I'm going to give him the glory, no matter if the farmer sees it or not. It doesn't matter because he sees and he sees my heart. And when he sees my heart and he sees it walking toward him, that's part of the sanctification pro process, right? Life is worship. So Jacob, he sends his whole family across the river. He sends all his possessions to the other side. And you might think he's getting some prayer time in with the Lord. He's like, I'm going to go over here and pray about this, right? No, he's hiding. He is terrified. 
He's hiding from the Lord. He's hiding from his problems. And he's going to sacrifice his whole family so that he can live. He's regressing. And who shows up? Who shows up in his desperation? And says, man, right. But yeah, it's God. I believe it's, I believe it's uh, Jesus Christ, who I believe it is, the angel of the Lord. I always believe that it's Jesus. Um, whether you believe that or not, that's up to you. But that's where I go. Then Jesus happened. You can see this guy's 15-second testimony. It says, before I, I work for myself, I sacrifice my family, I sacrifice all my possessions so I could live. And then Jesus happened. And I was able to walk across that bridge, not standing upright, but depending on a crutch, just like I crossed it the first time. But this time I had a crutch. I couldn't fight my brother. I had no way to stand up against him. I only had God. Jacob wrestles with his man all night long. Who's going to get control? God or Jacob? And neither gets the other upper hand. So the angel of the Lord touches Jacob's hip and permanently injures him. And in most wrestling, you will know that you need your hip for almost every wrestling move. To toss them, to turn, everything revolves quite a bit around the hips. It's a pivot point that you need to have. So Jacob can't throw him anymore. He can't wrestle with him anymore. The only thing he has to do is grab a hold of him and cling to him. Or otherwise, he's going to lose. And he clings to him. And in that moment, he understands. All right, I get it now. You are not a human. You'd think you'd probably, after 12 hours of wrestling, I don't know how you do that, by the way. Three minutes and I'm, 30 seconds these days and I'm done. <laughs> right? But uh, three minutes matches, it's an eternity out there. Um, <laughs> so neither is getting the upper hand and Jacob finally gets it. He understands what it means to be fully surrendered. He knows what it means to pursue holiness. He's beginning to understand the sacrificial action that the Lord has placed on him. And he's ready to face his brother Esau, come what may, because he's going to be clinging to the Lord. Amen? So what journey has the Lord taken you on? Have you asked the Lord for his forgiveness for your sins? That's the first step. If you want to become a Christ follower, the first step is act, asking the Lord to forgive you and receiving his free grace. Not because of anything you've done, but what he has done through Jesus Christ. Have you surrendered your life to God's way by obeying his commands. That's walking in process, right? So we read his Bible. We find out how he lived. We read the gospel specifically, and we find out how our rabbi lived, and we try to emulate that in our lives today. If so, that's great. That's, that's the first step of a journey that will be a blessing to you. If not, what's holding you back? What's holding us back? Is it our pride? Is it our... Um, ourselves. It is ourselves a lot of times, right? You see, Christ died for all our sins, yours and mine. He offers us this free gift of salvation, which allows us to go to heaven. 
but it's our choice whether we're going to receive it or not. Then we walk in his ways and do as he commands as we pursue righteous living. As we walk toward righteousness, we become more like Jesus in our words, in our deeds, in our actions. We strive to be separate from sin, a.k.a. holiness. When you strive to be separate from sin, that's, that's the definition of holiness, right? This process of walking toward holiness is called sanctification. Okay, that's the second part. So like um, it starts in uh, Romans chapter 5 and it walks through about Romans chapter 8. That's where you really get a good definition of sanctification, okay? This is why we go to church. This is why we have brothers um, meeting with brothers. So iron can sharpen iron, so one man sharpens another, Proverbs 27, 17. So my question to you today, brothers and sisters, who are you sharpening? Who are you encouraging to follow the Lord closer? Parents, are you striving this for your children? Children, are you, uh, are you trying to get this for your siblings? Are you trying to get this for your parents? Are you asking questions when you get home? And then I ask, who are you being sharpened by? Who's coming alongside you? Who's lifting you up? Who's praying for you? Do you know that? That's part of the reason why we do men's group. We have brothers that are walking alongside us. The result of turning your troubles over to the Lord is when he is fighting for you. And at times, he's fighting with you. In a sense, he's coming alongside you. But he's also sometimes fighting for you when you've run out of energy. He will keep going. I challenge you today to work the process of reconciliation, first with the Lord and then with your fellow man. God will honor the effort and your life will be changed for the better. The Lord has called us to reconcile our sins with him and with our fellow man as we surrender to his will. I want you to bow your heads. That's something you want to do today is declare to the Lord that I'm going to follow him first for the first time. I want you to raise your hand and let me see it and say, this is what I'm going to do today. Um, if it's something that you want to say, well, I've done that, Pastor. I've done that already. But I want to walk in sanctification with him today. I got things that are controlling my life that I need to give over to him. And I want to know that he is walking with me, which he is. But I'm going to surrender that to him today. Let's pray like this. Lord Jesus, Forgive me. Forgive me my, as my heart breaks before a holy God. Lord, I sin every day. I stack more sins on your son's back on that cross every single day. And my heart breaks. Lord, what can I do to defeat the sin? Show me the steps. Allow 
me to have a brother who will come alongside me and lift me out of the muck and the mire. Lord, allow my heart to break in the midst of that sin. Lord, allow me to put you first instead of my pride and my pleasures and my desires. Open up my heart to see the wonders that you have for you. Guide my mind back to you with strength, with tenacity to follow the Lord. Lord, you are our hope. You are our joy. And allow that hope and joy and that peace that passes understanding to be a testimony to my neighbors that I have changed and that I have changed for the better in the name of Christ Jesus. And when they ask me, what's different about you? I'll reply, Jesus Christ has changed my life and he can change yours too. Why don't you come find out? We thank you. We praise you for that walk and that step of following Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart of disciple making that we would follow you. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a disciple making way of life in Christ Jesus. As we go through every part of this day, help us to love you and to love the people who cross our path, starting with our family. Don't let us miss the adventures you are sending our way to live and to speak the good news about Jesus today. Draw our hearts to you and the specific people you want us to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. By your word and spirit, transform us into followers of Jesus who love you, who love people, and make disciples, who make more disciples. Add infinitum. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.